Hey everybody, welcome to Safe is Just a Podcast, episode 3. Today we're going to chat about some cool stuff about the actual recording process. I have Steve Sobchak from the Square Studio joining us today. Hey guys, how's it going? Good to have you here today. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're looking to kind of revisit some of the some of the old tracks that we did and compare them to some new ones and talk about some of the gear that we used. I know it's been a while, but I think between the two of us we can remember some of the stuff and hopefully answer some of these cool questions some of our, our fans have about, about the process. Yeah, absolutely. So, Steve, you, uh, you're kind of new to a lot of these people. You've been kind of in the background making our records sound, sound the way that they do, and I think it'd be cool to kind of enlighten some of these young people and some of our fans kind of how you got into this and, and what, you know, what, what you used along the way to get to where you are now during like the recording processes of other bands and our bands and you know where'd you come from where'd you start totally yeah um so i i started playing music with with friends in high school and you know the bands got a little bit more serious Uh, i started to record our practices and you know um just try to get the best sounding demos together as i could and other bands in the area started hearing those demos and thought they sounded cool and so you know, just kind of a business was born organically. And, uh, you know, over the years, it just became kind of obvious that it's what I wanted to do. Like, I was super passionate about being around music and, you know, having a hand in production and writing and arrangement. So I just kind of, you know, forged ahead at every step and, and tried to make it a career path. That's awesome. So tell us about some of the first recording gear you ever used. I remember some of my earlier setups were pretty happy yeah yeah totally <laughs> so my my first recording setup in a bare bones sense was a sure sm57 that went into a mackie cfx 12 mixer which is an old you know 200 dollars live mixer into a cassette deck that actually recorded onto uh to old cassettes and uh, I would go to the pharmacy and buy like four packs of 90 minute cassettes nice. and, and record the, you know, <laughs> record our, our practice demos on those. So that was the first setup. I, and I slowly, you know, started getting into multi-tracking um, as, you know, computer processing and stuff got to the point where it was capable of doing it. Um, and, you know, that was basically it. It's kind of funny because I, I remember my first recording setup, like my first ever anything that I ever recorded was done on uh, this this old crappy piece of gear that I, I honestly don't even remember where I got it or how I got it. It was, uh, it was like you said, a tape recorder, but it had multi-track capabilities on it. I think it had eight tracks or it might have had four. Yeah, like an old Tascam or Fostex thing or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you pop the tape in, you record on one channel, and then... In order for me to multi-track, I had to like do like the Beatles tricks where you, you yeah, play it on one track, it one, yep. bounce it onto the other one, and then you free up another track to record with. And I, I wish I could find anything that resembled some of my first first recordings because it's probably pretty horrendous. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, I moved on to like Acid Pro after that and couldn't multi-track on that. Every time I recorded, I had to do one track and then the the next the next take or the next part of the song was on a new track below that and so on and so on. So all my projects literally just looked like staircases that went down and they like had short stairs and long stairs. And it was just like the worst looking thing in the entire world. (laughs) So tell us about your first encounter with uh, Ice Nine Kills and some of the guys before Ice Nine Kills. 
Yeah, definitely. So the uh, the connection that I originally had was I was recording Dave Sealing's projects, uh, who was the you know old vocalist for for Ice Nine Kills at a certain point, and he was in a band called Remember Tomorrow, and uh, you remember that because you were a part of that. Oh and yeah. So uh, so you guys had come in and uh, and started tracking. Actually, I think that they as a band had worked with me before you were part of it. Uh, so my history with with Justin goes even farther back when he was singing with them, and um, yeah, so you know, you guys came in, you were really prepared, and you know, the session was smooth. But I just remember, you know, it was more detailed than almost anything I'd ever worked on. Um, you know, I can remember like you sitting over my shoulder, and we, you know, us gritting like thirty second note stuff on the drums. And that was something that at the time, you know, back in 2007 or 8 or whenever we made that record, it uh, wasn't really something I was used to doing. So it was a cool learning process. I remember, like, we got into a lot of interesting musical discussions and, you know, kind of pushed each other to to do the best record we could we could make. So to kind of tap on that, let's, let's take a question from Lizzie Fizzy 008. Now, how is the recording process different this time around than when the album was originally recorded, which... I know you and I can both relate to working so closely. Um, I mean, it was it was a completely different time. I mean, you you yeah. for one were in a different place. You were in, at your home studio versus your new studio. Tell tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the original record was made in you know actually made in my parents' basement, um, and we had to do a lot of wacky stuff to to make it as commercially competitive as possible. Um, with the the new record, we were able to track it in a you know a professional space that I've built in the time in between, and you know getting good sounds and getting accurate mixes and stuff just became so much easier um, in the years between moving up into a, a better space. So uh, that was one of the big advantages that we had on the new record versus the old record. I remember we were we were kind of chasing certain sonic qualities that were popular at the time too i mean wasn't that the same time that um we came as roman's first big big record came out yeah absolutely that was that was uh, a what was that song that first song called with that with i remember that mix that was a joey sturgis mix and that was right at the at the start of his his boom of his um his recording uh, scene, I guess you could say that he he kind of created this this uh, this sonic quality to these records that became very popular over the years, and and it was um, it was really really something that everybody wanted. And I remember I remember us trying to to take what we liked about that and apply it to our mixes at such an early stage in, in our career. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's it's funny because some of the references that you and I went over when we were tracking the album originally were a lot more organic and kind of, you know, raw sounding things like Unearth and, you know, stuff like that, where when we put it up against the Joey Sturgis mixes from the We Came As Romans album, it was just almost an entirely different thing. You know, it seemed like the the Sturgis stuff was like, you know, in the best possible way, like kind of the boy band of, of heavy music, like everything was perfect. Everything was huge and not so raw, you know? So I think we try, we kind of struggled in the, in the beginning there to figure out what the right balance for safe is just a shadow, you know, 1.0 was going to be, you know, if if we were going to try to jump on 
the you know kind of new modern slick sound or if we were going to try to push it into that kind of you know more traditional more organic boxy type of sound and you know it, it ended up landing somewhere in the middle i think yeah and i mean i guess i should ask you how often do bands come into your recording studio and they want to sound like one band and sound like another band and another band and then they're all just completely opposite of each other and you have to figure out a way to glue them together yeah, I mean that's such a such a common thing. I think bands want to sound like bands that they are inspired by, and oftentimes, you know, it's not one type of sound. It's you know, it's usually a lot of different influences. So, you know, people will come in and uh, you know bring one mix that's super tinny, but you know, super like loud and aggressive, and then another mix that's super dull and like more muted. And you know, they just what it boils down to is that they like the songs or they perceive the success of that band to be something that, you know, they kind of want to chase. And so, yeah, this part of the challenge is figuring out how to like weave all those influences together and something that, you know, doesn't sound like a, a copy and also sounds, you know, inspiring. We all fall guilty of wanting to be somebody else someday. <laughs> totally. I mean, I think though, you know, we've had those discussions where, you know, it, it's, it seems like, in order to be relevant, you either have to be the first at something or the best at something. And, you know, I think when we were putting the original Safe is Just a Shadow together, we were trying to do something unique. Um, and I know it was kind of like dovetailing on the Remember Tomorrow album that never really was released. So I think we were, we were trying to be as creative as possible inside of a, you know, genre that had a fairly strict set of rules that were starting to formulate. Yeah, I'm, I I still he listened to that Remember Tomorrow record, which a lot of you people out there have never heard, and I still to this day wish that I could, you know, kind of distribute to everyone the the passion project that we all had before that, and maybe that day will come. But we came from a, a different background when we when we joined Spencer to make the new Einstein Kills. Um, we had we had a lot of different visions, but they were starting to come together where we thought this this forming of the two bands together would be a really exciting and, and cool, unique way to bring our musical ideas to the table. And uh, maybe someday you'll, you'll get to hear that stuff in the way that, that we originally wanted it to, kind of like how we did with Safe Just a Shadow. Oh, we'll see. See what happens. <laughs> It'll just be more work for Steve and me, so I guess, yeah. we, I guess we have to agree to it. <laughs> yeah. So let's take another question. Um, Topher C-I-C-H wants to know what's your musical background outside of ice nine kills any schooling practice regimes i can't say that word very well regimes how do you say that Re regimes you're right <laughs> yeah i got it that's because i went to college i figured it out because i went to college <laughs> actually actually is it regimes or is it regimens well there's no n in the word so i think he's asking practice regimes <laughs> is that appropriate <laughs> I don't know. It sounds very military. Yeah, I would, I would start it over and just substitute that word. <laughs> no, that's funny. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that question in there. <laughs> All right. So anyway, what's uh, what's our musical background? Well, for me, uh, I grew up playing piano when I was a kid. My mom was a was a piano player. Her father and brother and whole family they were all really incredible piano players. And I kind of went a different direction as a young child. I I was introduced to the piano and I got like some basic rhythm out of it and I learned how to how to read music a little bit over time I kind of 
started to forget that because I, I was doing a lot of other things. I was into some sports and stuff and I, I eventually wanted to play drums and guitar. So once I got to, I don't know, how old are you when you're like in eighth grade? What is that? Like 14 or something? 13, 14. So when I was about 13 or 14, I, I saw someone playing guitar and playing songs that I knew. And I was like, wow, that's, that's like the coolest thing. How did, how do you do that? How do you know that you can play songs that I heard on the radio? And that kind of sparked my interest in wanting to learn how to play guitar after already, you know, playing the snare drum or the, the bass drum in concert band and wanting to, to get a drum set and everything. So it kind of formed around that time, you know, being able to identify uh, bands that I've heard and instruments that can be played and that I could, I could play those songs on an instrument. And, and from there on, it, throughout high school, it just kind of developed into this desire to want to be in a band. And, you know, outside of Ice Nine Kills, right now, I actually do a lot of um, writing and, and, I guess, production for, for other bands. Kind of like what I do for, for this band with Steve, but also with other bands. Because, you know, music is, a, is an outlet for either your emotions or, or uh, your creativity you know, all different things that, that can help you kind of express yourself and and, uh, and and kind of be part of other people's experiences as well with music. So for me, that's that's kind of what I like to do. And um, I kind of learned a lot of that stuff through through my process of being in the band and working with Steve and um, my schooling that I, I went I went to a, a, a college in in uh, the Finger Lakes called FLCC that had uh, a really, really cool recording program with state-of-the-art equipment. It was a pretty amazing alternative to going to uh, a school like like Full Sail where they have, you know, a, an amazing facility there, but is uh, like the tuition is maybe out of out of the question for me as a as a young young guy. I didn't really have that kind of money. But I went to Finger Lakes and I, I got I got an associate's degree in music recording technology. And actually, recently I went back to the school to say hello to some professors and check out the new recording facility that they have there. And it's, you know, being being there when I was in college in like 2007, 2008, like back then it was state-of-the-art and amazing. And I went there last week and, and saw how unbelievably incredible the setup is. Like they have they have everything there. And it's it's really great at a community college level to be able to have that that experience and that opportunity to learn. And um, that's kind of where I got my basics for for creating projects on a computer with recording programs and using Pro Tools and, and all that stuff. And it was, it was really, really uh, a great opportunity for, for young people to be able to have that at their disposal. So what about you, Steve? I know you, you did some college for, for uh, marketing, you, you were telling me. Yeah, I got a, got a bachelor's degree in marketing, really didn't have much to do with my upbringing in music. I, I feel like I actually had kind of a kind of a opposite uh, experience as you did as far as getting into music. You know, you had said you kind of saw people playing stuff that you heard on the radio and you thought that was cool. Um, you know, I feel like I, when I was a kid, I, I was, you know, put into piano lessons and, you know, I did symphonic band in school, but I feel like my 
my personal creative projects were always kind of reactionary, like against that sort of thing, you know, like I, I was exposed to the theory and exposed to the technique and I kind of wanted to just go out and do everything anti that, uh, you know, try to come up with the most esoteric things, you know, crazy time signatures, angular melodies and stuff. And then over time I realized that, you know, there's value to all of it. You know, the theory kind of, uh, supports, when to use certain techniques and when not to. And knowing the theory doesn't necessarily mean that it's putting you into a box. And so I, you know, I, I kind of just explored all through the spectrum. And, you know, now I find myself, you know, spending a large part of my time composing for, you know, TV and film and ad music and stuff, which is definitely not uh, super angular <laughs> and crazy time signatures <laughs> and stuff like that. So it's kind of all come full circle. The other part of the question that Telfer had was about practicing. Um, what about you, Steve? Do you what What is your practice schedule like? Do you have a practice schedule with all your different projects that you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I play it. You know, some instrument every day, whether it's sitting in kind of as a session musician uh, for you know a band that is in the studio, or whether it's you know, in one of the composition projects that I have going on. Um, but I try to make time to stay competent on most of the core instruments that I play. You know, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I'm, you know, at least, at least a couple hours a week sitting behind a drum kit, playing to a metronome, at least a couple hours a week fiddling around on, you know, a guitar or something. So I, you know, I can get my fingers in check and, and, you know, and I try to play in projects outside of the studio that, that challenge me to, you know, learn a new instrument or just get better at an instrument that I've gotten too comfortable with or something. So, uh, you know, really anything that kind of pushes me to do something different is really what I've started to find valuable. Yeah. I find that, you know, the amount of playing that we do between our, our bands or our projects or the, the recording sessions that we have going on, that practice kind of doesn't, doesn't come to us like, like a scheduled thing, like uh, we got to sit down, and we got to run scales, or we have to, we have to work on our chops for something. It's it's just a constant workflow of playing our instruments and the ones that we're either good at or we're not good at. You know, the, we're always challenging ourselves to get better at whatever we're doing, and it's it's kind of just just part of the part of the job, I guess you can say. We're we're always playing, not necessarily practicing, but always always being involved in the instruments and bringing them to life. So Steve, let's talk about the drum process that, that we went through back then and, and now. What, what are the differences in, in, your, um, in your drums that you did back then versus the new record? I know that drums have always been like your biggest strong suit, um, and I've always loved the way that they sounded. Yeah, it was it was definitely different. Um, the first time around, I think you know we were definitely using a less ideal space. So part of the consideration was to use microphones that had tighter pickup patterns, so we weren't getting as much of the room. Um, you know, everything that we've done for both of these iterations of the album has live track drums on it, and they're edited and enhanced with samples and stuff. But it it all starts with you know, somebody sitting behind the kit and actually playing. Um, so that's always been really important to me is in, in both the original take of the record and the new take, I wanted to make sure that 
the natural excitement of, you know, a drummer hitting on the downbeats, they hit po- more powerful than, than it being programmed. And there's, there's something, especially with overheads and cymbals and stuff that I feel like is, is really tough to, to get the energy right if you don't have a human being behind the kit playing. So, so part of the focus on, on both of the, the times we tracked it was to make sure that we capture that energy capture like as you know somebody's hitting harder it feels harder and so a lot of the the gear decisions and mic placements and stuff were to you know to kind of be respectful to the fact that we knew we were going to be blending in samples we knew we were going to be augmenting the performances in a lot of different ways but at the same time we wanted to retain some sense of realism and some sense of the power that comes from somebody behind the kit just blasting away um as far as gear specifics, uh, you know, I, I don't think we were using anything that was really super expensive or crazy on the the first record. Um, I think we were using is overheads. We were using uh, Shure SM81s and Octava MK12s. Uh, one of those were you know just left and right, and one of those were spot mics for ride and hi hat. Uh, I think we were probably just using sure SM57s around the kit on the toms and the snare and uh, AKG D112 in the kick drum. And I, I can't remember if we had room mics set up. I, I don't think we did because the room wasn't particularly great sounding, but it was a really kind of basic setup. And, uh, you know, all the samples that we used were samples that we made on our own. You know, I remember Connor's, Connor's dad has a massive collection of, of drums. And so there were a couple days where Connor and JD showed up to the, the studio and, you know, they had 10 drum kits and, you know, 15 <laughs> snare drums. And we would just kind of th- set up mics on, on all the pieces and see what sounded the best and try to figure out like in our, in our actual natural recording, what were we missing? You know, were we missing body to a snare drum or were, were we missing like top end snare wire sound or whatever? And we would try to find a snare they would complement the the live track thing that we already got. I think I remember. I think I remember specifically using. Was that was that the record that we did like five or six different snares across the whole thing? I actually think that was the Remember Tomorrow record where you know we changed the snare drum out for most of the songs, and then yeah. the and the, the challenge end, we just decided it was a completely different <laughs> snare. Yeah, the <laughs> challenge then became like finding a snare that we could use across the album that would make it all kind of sit in the same place. That's right, and you, you did you did something really really wacky. At least at the time, I thought it was I thought it was crazy. oh yeah. It's, you you put the snare upside down, and, and ladies and gentlemen, this is this is. The, the craftiness of, of Steve Sobjek at the Square Studio, he would take, like, wh- when we did that Remember Tomorrow record, we did every song differently with a different snare because, um, you know, we thought it'd be cool. Like, yeah, let's, let's, let's do what they do on big, huge, major label records that, you know, would sound awesome. We thought it'd be really cool. So we, we recorded all these different snares across all the different songs, and then at the end, we're like, they're kind of cool, but they don't stand out enough so we record we replaced the entire thing with one different snare maybe you blended it with some others but t- tell them about the trick with the with the the snare on the speaker so the process actually you know we recorded all the different snare drums as, as you just said but then what happened when we were listening to the record was there were some songs that just sounded you know if we used a higher tuned snare drum or like a woodier snare drum it just might you know it may have cut way more or way less or something so we we're trying to find a way to to like bridge the gap between the drum sounds across the songs. And one of the things that we noticed was a problem was that we didn't really have 
very consistent sounding like snare wires you know we didn't it, it some songs sounded like the snare was a tom and some songs sounded like all wire so i was trying to figure out a way to kind of be able to control that more independently so i took a snare drum and i i flipped it upside down on a 212 speaker cabinet and i routed out a heavily gated signal from our you know, live tracked snare drum. So essentially it was just like a pop. It was just the transient. Um, and I, I blasted that through the speaker and the, the reaction of the sound going through the speaker and then through the drum is it basically recreated somebody hitting a drum. So I was able to get, and, it, and it's dynamic too. It would respond to, you know, if, if Connor had played the drum super loud, the hit would come through and it would strike the snare drum harder. The, you know, the force of the, the sound waves. So um, we were able to kind of get a clean take of a consistent snare bottom to just blend <laughs> in through across the entire record. But it was like, you know, we called it reamping a snare drum. It was a really bizarre thing to do, but it would, it worked, worked really well. So, yeah, I don't know where you pulled that trick out of, but it was, it was remarkable to walk in the room. It, like this Steve started doing this, I believe before we got to the studio one day, and just saw this contraption set up, like, what are you doing? He explained the entire thing, and we're like, oh my god, that's that's insane. And and he had already had like like the 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 snare wire sample already put in, and it's like, yo, check out this snare. Check, I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> that was tight. I remember that. Yeah, it was fun to. It, I remember, you know, back in those days, it was fun to just like try to, you know, try anything, like be pretty pretty crazy to you know get the sounds that we wanted and I, I feel like I'm still like that it's just I don't you know I make better decisions on the front end of the projects now so I don't really find <laughs> myself having to having to come up with a crazy contraption to save my ass well we are we also had a lot of time to to think about things that we wanted to change or do differently like every time we came back to the studio because uh for for those of you who don't know the square studio is in syracuse new york and uh, a handful of us live in rochester and boston so it's kind of in the middle it's a little closer to rochester but we could get there like in a day if we wanted to just drive there a couple hours away and try some stuff or or experiment with some new idea or if we wanted to just not make a record in f four weeks and make it in you know four months yeah, three months yeah <laughs> we were we were known for working with steve and dragging out our recording processes over many many months with long breaks in between either whether it's based on uh, a, a traveling schedule some touring or or just not having all the money to do it all at once um we were known for doing that and we would come back after like three weeks of a break and be like let's uh let's re-record all of that one thing and steve would be like really <laughs> yeah usually a lot of times a recording engineer would be like sure it's you know it's, it's your dime but steve is more like really we we took all this time to make this great stuff and and let you know we let's commit to it and and you know that was kind of <laughs> a back and forth that we always had with with our dragged out process projects uh, absolutely <laughs> so i remember a couple other things about the drums we um i remember when we recorded at your your parents house in the basement studio you used to take off the kick drum head. Yes. And Mike with the D112. Yeah, I I really, at that time, and it was actually kind of a response to the sound of albums that I loved, but but at, the, at that time, you know, a great kick drum sound to me in metal was super clicky without a lot of boom, without a lot of pillowy 
sound. So the resonant heads of, of a kick drum, I guess, depending on how it's tuned, you know, kind of led to like more of a poofy sound with an actual like musically relevant tone. Whereas it, taking the head off, we were able to get a much more concise, short, you know, tons of attack, not a lot of sustained type of sound. So that was a key uh, to the, you know, kind of the sound of the first record. And what what drum kit did we actually use for that? Did we use the uh, the DW? Yeah, we used, which I actually, has, has become my house studio kit. It was uh, Connor's dad's 1995 DW Collector Series kit. That uh, and that was the first time I think I had ever recorded it was for uh, for that album. I love and, it. Too. Uh, I love it I've, so much. <laughs> I, you know, over the last couple of years, I've uh, I've acquired it piece by piece from from Connor's dad. So now it lives at the studio, which is a funny little anecdote. Uh, but yeah, so yeah. so that kid, I, we used that the first time around, and then on the the second time around, uh, Connor was using uh, what is it, Sa- Savior drums. Uh, yes, this we use the Savior kit, which was. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm going to get yelled at if I say it wrong. I think it was a. It, we had three toms. Yeah. Um, it was. Was it a 15 on top? No, 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 not a 15. Was it a 13? On it top? was a 13, a 15, and an 18. I think is how that ended up being. I think so. I think so. That was a, but, that was a pretty cool kit. I remember the toms were were huge. Yeah, the toms were huge. It was I remember it was kind of a challenge like, you know, we had to tune up from the bottom because getting that 18 to sound anything like a tom instead of a kick drum was <laughs> yeah. difficult, but uh yeah, that was a cool kit and we used the TRX cymbals across both records. Um those are, you know, I think both Connor and I have deals with uh with that company, but they make just some of the nicest sounding, best recording cymbals. They do. Uh, I, I really like those. And we actually, for those of you who don't know, we use TRX cymbals on the, the newest record, um, Every Trick in the Book, as well as the re-recorded version of Safe is Just a Shadow. Um, I remember Every Trick in the Book was a little different because we, we programmed those drums for the first time. It was a full record of um, not humanly played drums that, that Steve and I um, took samples of a kit and we actually took samples of the green kit, the, uh, the DW that we were just talking about and a full array of different TRX symbols and chopped those up into, into programmable samples with various velocities and various hits of each one at different velocities. And safe is just a shadow. The second one, the most recent one was actually the last record that we, we played a full kit all at once because uh what so we did uh me myself and Hyde, when we did it as the bridge track when it was on its own before we did it for the record we did that kit in pieces right didn't we do just the symbols yeah. and then just the snare and toms and then just the kick drum as an experiment all right so yeah so we'd done it in a way where we had learned just the just the symbol part um, so when we were tracking, it, we were only recording the cymbals, but it was all the way through the song. And then same thing with the snare and toms, kind of learned the part independently and then the kick independently. And then we edited them to all be one cohesive performance. But what was nice about that is it allowed us to not have to use samples for the snare and toms because we could compress the hell out of them without bringing up any kind of cymbal bleed or anything like that so it was it was all kind of a big experiment but it was a uh, something that i kind of wish we were able to do 
as uh, as time went on and on some of the future releases. Yeah, I mean, we were we were trying to find ways to cut down on time spent in the studio just because our touring schedule between the last year and a half and two years was so busy. So it's like we were running out of time to do the things that we wanted to do. And, you know, like we didn't have the time to experiment like we did back in the Remember Tomorrow and early Ice Nine Kills days where we, we could drag out a recording process and then try 10 different snares on a record. Like we had to get it done fast. So we were experimenting with trying to see if this would be a faster way to do it without having to program the drums because programming the drums was, was something at the time that we were a little weary of. You know, I still am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially with uh, with you know a lot of the records that were coming out with programmed drums, like you could hear it in so many of these records, and it was important for us to maintain as much realism as we could, but also still get that polished sound. And at the time when we did um, "Safe Is Just a Shadow," the second time around when we did the drums, which was how long ago did we do that? Like three years ago, the drums for that. Yeah, it was 2014. Yeah, so we weren't really at a stage where we were comfortable doing that yet. So that was the last time we did, we did like the real full drums with the exception of the kick drum. We, we didn't record the kick drum because that was the first time we started experimenting with uh, a different recording process. So we programmed the kick drum in with safe is just a shadow second time around. And then we did the bridge track where we did the program uh, or no, we, that was when we did the the split between the cymbals, the toms, and the kick drum, and then the new record we did, we did the program. So it's become kind of a different process across all of our records to see what we can do faster, or what what would be the best sounding or the easiest to work with setup. And it turned out that when we did the bridge track, the the one with the splitting of the cymbals, the toms, and the, the kick drum, that it didn't actually save any time at all. It was just a, a cool way to experiment with um, with the controllability of the symbols versus symbols that had bleed of snare and toms in them, and we could squash the symbols without having all this cross bleed with different stuff. And I think, if anything, it probably added time. I guess you know when we were when we were working on it, I'm I, I'm not even so sure that the the decision to do it was to save time. I feel like, you know, that was always a consideration, but I think we were trying to figure out a way that we could, you know, make a convincing drum recording that, that sounded as consistent as samples do, but still retained some kind of, you know, human element or whatever. And, and so that was, you know, uh, it was an interesting experiment. I think we all agreed that that was one of the coolest sounding mixes we were able to come up with for drums but um it just the process was so tedious that it it wasn't practical to do across a you know an entire record i like that you said convincing because that is um that's a term that very much describes the metal community and the the way of going about recording things and and capturing things is it has to be convincing that it was either real or that it's that it's heavy enough convincing is a very 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 funny way to to say well and that's i mean that's the hardest thing about working inside of the metal genre is that on the one hand people expect things to be inhumanly consistent i mean inhuman is almost indicative of the genre like you you it's mechanical at a certain point and it's supposed to be very technical and very precise almost inhumanly so. So on the one hand, you have the the expectation that everything is is perfect. But on the other hand, if it sounds 
computerized, you, you know, you're, you're criticized. So it's a really tough, a really tough balance. And I think one of the things we've always tried to do, especially with, with drums and making sure, you know, the majority of the tracks are played live is yeah, across the safe is just a shadow releases is to, you know, be able to preserve a little bit of that honesty in the performance that I think is, you know, sometimes lost across a lot of metal records. Okay. So let's grab another question from ice nine killer. Did you guys ever consider adding other bonus tracks to the album or did you want to keep it as close to what you originally wanted the album to be? Well, this is uh, a bit more unknown, but I actually have been trying for the past couple, couple recording processes to add some, like one or two of the songs from the, the burning. Um, and it, it just never, it never formulated to to a way where we were like yeah let's let's definitely do this but i re-recorded you scratched my anchor probably three times i think yeah we tried for both releases of the album to have that that song on it we recorded that it fully the first time and we got halfway through the second time the other one was in the throes of a moral quandary i re-recorded that one i think three times too and i think (laughs) this 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 record was recorded the first time, it was started in Florida with Tom Denny, and we re-recorded Safe is Just a Shadow, or we re-recorded You Scratch My Anchor and Moral Quandary down there, along with a couple other songs that were Remember Tomorrow songs um, that never actually made it to the real Safe is Just a Shadow. Some of them stayed Remember Tomorrow songs. And when we came back to New York and re-recorded the record, I guess you could say the first time for its actual original release. Um, some of those things actually didn't translate over and those being you crash my anchor moral quandary and a couple remember tomorrow songs. Well, and it was largely because we, we spent more time with the songs after we worked on them with Tom. Uh, right. you know, there were, there were months in between retracking it in my studio. So we, you know, and we had gone out and seen James Paul Wisner and, you know, he had some, some interesting things to say about the way that the album was put together and the kind of combining of the two bands sounds. And so when we, when we finally got to the point where we were tracking this thing for real, it was, it was clear which songs were the best fit for, for what we were trying to do at the time. At least that was my interpretation of what was going on. So to get back to the question about whether to keep it original or not, I'd say, yeah, we wanted to keep it as original as we could because so many people fell in love with those songs for what they were back then. Uh, it was more about bringing that 2010 Ice Nine Kills experience back and give it the release that we, we originally wanted to have for it. Um, but, you know, it's not to say that, that the songs didn't have a couple extra elements throughout the record that maybe modernized it a little bit. Um, mostly sonically, but they, we added a few layers to a couple songs in different places, uh, but the actual structuring of the material is is still identical. There was a few drum fills that were adjusted and a couple guitar licks that might have been spiced up just a little bit. People under the stairs had the, the string parts rearranged to kind of bring that every trick in the book vibe to the song. Um, the last song on the record evidence on fire had a a string arrangement put to the song and kind of replaced some of the dated uh, sampling work that we did in that so with the exception of that last song and adding layers to it it really is a recreation of pretty much the exact same material 
So another question from Michael Woods one, was it hard to re-record buildings burn, people die? I think we can kind of spread that, that across all of the songs on the record, not just that one, but when we re-recorded it, like we had played most of these songs for years and like we had executed the parts for many tours and many shows and, you know, going back to re-record it, it actually was not hard. It was rather relaxing and easy because we had familiarized ourselves with the material for so long that it was just like, go in, bang it out. You don't have to worry about whether this part is right for the song or, or if this vocal needs to be a bit different or if the guitar part is just not fitting right. Like it, The arrangements were done, you know, with the exception of any small sonic layers that we were putting on top to kind of make maybe the choruses pop a little more. There really wasn't that much that, that we did differently. It was actually quite easy to just walk in and bang it out. Yeah, I think even from the recording side, you know, when we were doing it the first time, it was a lot of experimentation. We were trying to find a sound, trying to figure out what would work right, uh, figure out what would be commercially competitive, but still kind of unique. And with this, you know, the second time, it's like we'd, we'd done it a bunch of times. So, you know, it wasn't, there weren't, weren't a lot of questions as how, you know, as to how to best proceed. I think it was kind of from the from the production side, we we had already answered a lot of those what ifs that were kind of bogging our session down in in 2010. So I think it was it was all around pretty pretty easy. I, I would think it's probably even one of the easier projects that we've done. Yeah, especially since we we dragged this one out over over a few yeah. years. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, it definitely it definitely was not shorter, but uh, <laughs> I mean, like we were saying about. Our, our recording sessions being kind of split up between different months back then. This one kind of is just like a nod to that. Like we recorded this over three years while we were not touring or while I had breaks and we could fit it in with the schedule. Just kind of a passion project for all of us, you know? Yeah. I, I was really excited to do it. And I, I mean, I wanted to do it like fast. I wanted to like just get right through it and have fun doing it and get it done in like a month and a half. And it just didn't really need to be done that fast because at the time when I started it, it wasn't so important that the record get out immediately. And we had had other competing, competing projects going on as well with new records and stuff. We wanted to make sure we were doing it right. You know, we wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, we weren't just forcing this out, you know, like we, we spent a lot of time. I mean, I can even remember, you know, going to JD's and helping him set up for guitar tracking and, you know, taking sample mixes back to my studio. I mean, even to get to a point where we were comfortable having, you know, guitars be tracked, it was, you know, it was actually a lot of effort and time going back and forth, trying to make sure that, that it would work. And and the reason we set it up with, with JD tracking guitars on his own was so that he would have the time to get everything perfect without feeling rushed by the clock in the studio. Um, yeah. So that, you know, I think that this whole thing, even though it took a long time to put together, a lot of the time in between was actually necessary to make sure that that what was coming out was worth doing. It was, you know, worth worth having it be a re-release. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a really great engineer. He's helping a band with no money find a way to save money. Pretty awesome. <laughs> Especially for us over the years, you know, being in a band is not cheap and you don't make money doing it. Um and having someone on your side who not only 
has a passion for your music and your career and your direction and their own as well is is a blessing on top of every other thing that that happens it's really cool to have someone outside of your band take such a, a passion in your project and you know thank you steve you know we've always we've always loved you for that <laughs> absolutely it's been an awesome ride i mean i i've enjoyed every you know every up and down that's that's happened i think the the low points have made us stronger like we've had we've had it out in the studio oh, yeah. you know oh, yeah. uh, there's been some some crazy moments and uh you know i think those have only served to make us stronger in the long run and you know, serve to to help the the current albums and future albums be better. You know, I think when you work with somebody for you know going on a decade, you start to understand how to work with them effectively. And we've definitely we've definitely crossed into a, a territory where I feel really confident in in the material we're putting out, in the you know in the production elements that you know at one time were questions, and also just in the fact that like we're all having a good time doing it. You know, it's it's graduated into something over the years that is is really fun to work on and is awesome to see grow it's really cool to see the fan response grow consistently with each album and you know and all that kind of stuff so i just i'm happy to be a part of it humbled by the uh you know by the response from everybody and you know looking forward to continuing to to work together yeah we got more work for you we always do <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really great it's really great to have Steve with us all the time with with these projects and Steve has become one of one of our greatest friends and you know we love him he's on the Christmas list <laughs> 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 all right so let's get into another question here Scarlet Heroes wants to know how do you ensure your live sound represents your studio sound well Steve, you've seen us play live a bunch of times, and you know kind of the tones that I go for in the studio are pretty similar to the ones that I like to do live, especially with amp sounds. Yeah, I think we've, uh, you know, we've always used re real tube amps in the studio, um, and we've always tried to shoot for a super aggressive you know, super pick attack forward type of guitar sound. And I think JD on his Axe Effects is, is really able to get similar, uh, similar results in like a much more controllable and dependable way than, you know, bringing a crazy old tube amp out on the road every day. Yeah, but that um, was also because y you and I both know what amps I used to use. And right, I yeah. mean, I didn't necessarily switch to Axe Effects because I wanted to sound like everybody who had an Axe Effects. I mean, I switched to that for the convenience of touring and the capabilities that were on it and how, how compact it was. But I still, exactly. I still based all of our, my tones on what we always did in the studio or what I used to do with a tube amp. Everything was very high gain with that sizzle on top. And like you said, a lot of pick attack aggression in, in the actual tone. And the fact that it was, was very clean and didn't need any maintenance while on the road, you know, with tubes or, blowing fuses and crap like that like that was what what helped me stay with the axe effects and want to continue doing it but still at the core you know we're we're still emulating the tones that that we've always dialed in for studio sessions and i think another interesting thing about that is you know a lot of times they're you know the at least from what i've experienced the the band's live decisions on what gear they're using and what type of sounds they're going for are kind of informed by experiments th that we make in the studio. You know, TRX cymbals definitely came from, you know, 
playing with them in the studio and and yeah. getting that type of sound and using you know it, it works in reverse too we we used connor's drum kit his touring drum kit for the first two or three records that we did um because that was his sound so there's it, it kind of works both ways in that what we experiment with in the studio then can become a technique that is used live but also what the band is doing in in a room when they're practicing or on stage when they're on tour also informs what we do in the studio right and i think that it's it's not the same for every band like i think a lot of bands will show up to a studio looking for help or they'll they'll show up to the studio wanting the guy at the studio to just take whatever they're playing and make it sound a certain way. Whereas when, when we stepped into the studio, we, we had tones in mind or we, we not necessarily had just like references of bands that we wanted to sound like, like we talked about before, but we actually had sounds that we each developed for ourselves that we liked. And we wanted you to take our tones and make them sound great together. Yeah, exactly. And that that was kind of the fun of the, you know, the initial recording of Safe is Just a Shadow was, you know, getting getting into really, you know, I remember Shane's bass tone was crazy, you know, like he he was really gritty like kind of uh, you know, that that music man uh yeah. type of yeah, that, type of sound. What and was that chain that we used? We had uh it was the Stingray through uh We had an MXR uh drive pedal. Yep. That was a DI also, and that that went into a rat pedal that had a chip replacement inside of it from, I think it was like a chip that was in a bunch of old 80s distortion pedals. Yeah. And then out of that, it went into, I think, a noise gate. But it was yeah. it was grungy as heck. It was, it was awesome. Yeah, we did. We tracked that direct and also through his 810 so that we were able to kind of blend speakers moving air with did we use the we uh, use his cab we yeah on the on the original save is just a shadow we did yeah and, and it must have been the 610 because i think we were we yeah, were 610. avidly against the 810s in comparison to the 610s either way we had a uh you know we had the the speaker cabinet actually moving air in the room and capturing that and then we kind of blended that with the the direct signal and we we used the the direct signal more for the low end because it was really consistent and you know, kind of just a, a powerhouse that we could count on. And then we used the, we had high passed the, uh, the amp signal and used that more for like the mid range grind. I think that most of the pedals were routed to the, to the amp itself. And that was kind of how we arrived at that tone. But, um, it was definitely a cool, you know, a cool thing to, cause he had, you know, you guys had worked out that tone for him. It was very unique to, to him. And it was cool to, uh, cool to be able to, to experiment with it when we were, when we were tracking it around the first time, yeah, the bass tones were always were always like the fun parts. Trying to trying to dial those in. T- tell them about the bass the bass stuff that you did for this new one. I remember you were telling me something really, really crazy uh, with with matching like the frequency content of each song and the fundamentals or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's so crazy. <laughs> with this with this one, it was interesting because you know you had tracked the the bass on your own. Um, and actually, just I should mention I that was the first record that i used um a gibson grabber i think it was the first and only record that i used unless we did it on predator becomes the prey but this was an old gibson grabber from i think oh, steve's gonna yell at me i think it was this, i think it was like an 82 or uh there was one from the 70s i think that we had and it was really grindy it had like that shiftable pickup in the middle of it 
But yeah, it was a cra- crazy guitar. But yeah. in, in any in any case, when when the tracks came to me, it was just like it was kind of slightly anemic sounding. Like it wasn't it didn't have a ton of low end. Um, and at this point, we had we had moved on to uh, using the the dark glass pedal for a lot of the you know the grind on the bass tone. Yes, yeah, the B seven K. Yep. So when I was when I was reamping the bass, uh, I was running it through that, and then through a old Ampeg V4 into a Aguilar 410, and uh, you know I was just when I got the the tracks back in, everything in the in the mid range and top end sounded perfect, exactly where I wanted it to be. But a lot of the a lot of the low end stuff was missing for me, and I I don't know if it was a re- result of the grabber just kind of being a thin sounding bass guitar, or if it was you know just the the DI box in general. But um, something was lacking. So I Waves makes this really cool plugin called Renaissance Bass, and what you can do is set a you know a frequency where in the low end where it will uh, you know kind of fabricate or enhance upper order harmonics that fool you into thinking you're hearing a deeper sound than you actually are. And so I was able to go in with a a frequency chart and figure out the key of each song and then what fundamental frequency that would be in Hertz to set (laughs) Renaissance bass to. And then I could enhance the the bass response in, in a way that was respectful to the key of the song. So when a breakdown was happening on, let's say, a C sharp, for example, there's a specific frequency in hertz that that correlates to that so i was able to find those and uh and plug them into the compressor or plug them into the uh the the renaissance bass plugin and uh and roll from there so it really it really served to kind of thicken up the sound in a way that was really musical do you think you could say that entire thing again while i while i like slowly start building a full orchestra behind what you're saying <laughs> just gun, 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 gun. <laughs> feel like that would add to the epicness of what you just explained to me which i, st- I still don't fully understand it's uh it's a really <laughs> cool thing <laughs> so hats off to steve for putting together my favorite bass tone of all of our records so i want to say thanks to steve for joining us for the third episode of safe is just a podcast it's been really cool having you steve absolutely thanks it's been fun stay tuned for the next episode of safe is just a podcast Players are key.